Hello everyone, and welcome to Lockdown Law. I have another great episode for you today, and I hope you enjoy. If you have the time and the means, I'm asking you to please support this podcast. Ideally, if you could sign up on Patreon and support Lockdown Law for as little as $5 per month, you'll get early access to episodes. I'd really appreciate your support. Again, Lockdown Law on Patreon, and you can join the community. Or you could visit my website, www.lockdownlaws.com, and donate. You can also email me through the website and let me know what's been your favorite episode so far. And finally, if nothing else, I would really appreciate a rating on Apple Podcast. Either way, thank you for listening. Thank you for your support. And I hope you enjoy this episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Lockdown Law. My guest today is Paul Cannon. Paul is a distinguished personal injury attorney in Houston, Texas, with a particular expertise in dog bite law. Paul really challenges the negative stereotypes of personal injury attorneys. His volunteer work is quite impressive. Paul has organized a project that serves meals to the homeless in Houston. Paul has organized another project that takes children to hockey games. His other volunteer work has included helping seniors in nursing homes, and fundraising for victims of human trafficking. Paul, thank you for your volunteer work, and thank you for being on this podcast. Well, thank you very much. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here, Ian. And uh, you're really you know, making me look bad with all your volunteer work. That's quite <laughs> impressive. <laughs> well, you're going over a long history. It's uh, um Different churches that I've been involved in have had different uh, projects going on. At one point in time, I was a missions group director at Second Baptist. That's been many years, and I was involved in quite a few different little projects here because it was my job to set up something for the, the classes to do and the groups to do as a group. So I did quite a, a bit of, of some of, the, of that. Some of the things that you've mentioned are things that I've done uh, when I was with Second Baptist. I'm, a, I'm actually at Fairfield Baptist now. Um, and usually more of the mission stuff we're doing now is, is been lately involved with uh, the law firm itself. Um, for example, when we had the floods here uh, back when Harvey hit, we actually had over 900 first responders that were in the mall parking lot that's next to our office building. They had set up their shops. They had, they had camps, tents, were taking showers and makeshift showers. And uh, when we arrived after Harvey and saw those people camped out, in the parking lot next to us all the way. I mean, they took up the whole mall parking lot. We stopped working and we literally just set up a table outside and brought a bunch of donuts and coffee and started serving them coffee. And, uh, and next thing you know, it ballooned. People would drive by and see us and they'd stop by and go, hey, can we donate some stuff too? And, and they'd drop stuff off the table. So we'd spend the morning serving them breakfast. And then these uh, food trucks spotted us and they would come by and serve them lunch and dinner. And so it was kind of a nice project we had going for about a week. Um, but we've been involved in some local stuff like that as a firm. We've been involved in uh, things like the the MS bike rides, the various fundraising events for that. Uh, we were supposed to be involved in MAD 
this year, but Mad's event got canceled. So we're hoping that next year we'll be able to sponsor Mad as well. But uh, so we try and get involved in some good stuff. That's very good. Very impressive. And I'm um, thankful you're doing that. So today's episode is really important for those of you who are thinking about going to law school. Um, the, a mandatory course in your first year is called tort law. And basically it's personal injury. So um, some pretty important stuff we're talking about today. So the fundamental principles of tort law or personal injury are these four things called duty, breach, causation, damages. Let's talk about that briefly before we go any further. Can you briefly explain those four concepts? Um, well, the concept of duty is that every reasonable, it's kind of a reasonable person standard and every ordinary prudent person is expected to act as a reasonably prudent person would uh, in any general circumstances. There are certain set duties that are set as a matter of law, uh, that statutes set them out. So, for example, we don't run red lights. We have a duty to stop when the light's red. Uh, there are other duties that arise as a result of just the common law. That is what's arisen over the from the courts and the old English common law over the years, and that is our general duties not to harm one another and not to do things that would lead to harm to one another, um, or that you should anticipate that. And then there are uh, various other duties that just kind of arise over time from the court systems and the uh, and and the and common sense, I guess you would kind of say, because it, there's a, just a general duty not to act negligently towards others. So that would be your duty. Um, breaching the duty obviously is failing to meet that standard of care. Um, proximate cause generally means that your negligence in breaching that duty ultimately uh, was a producing factor and bringing about damages as a result. Uh, and that gets into a whole question of foreseeability and, and, and you look at the situation and go, okay, yes, if I set off a chain of events and, and there's an immediately produced uh, harm, then I'm responsible for it. But if I set off a chain of events, those come to rest and then and then, you know, maybe 30 minutes later, someone's injured as a result of some other intervening event, then I may not be responsible for that ultimately harm there. So that's where proximate cause comes in. And then damages is just what it sounds like. What are your harms and losses as a result of the conduct that shouldn't have been done? Yeah. And uh, I remember from law school, the two concepts that kind of um, surprised me was one regarding duty and, and the other regarding damages uh, the duty one, you know, there's no duty to rescue somebody. So, you know, if you see somebody um, drowning, you don't have a duty to go out there and try to rescue them. Um, you may have to answer to a higher power, but um, <laughs> not, not the law. Um, and with damages, um, it's better to get, you know, assaulted by a rich person than a poor person because a poor person could be judgment proof, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's very true. <laughs> So, yeah, so when you go to law school and you study tort law that first year, those are the um, four big concepts that you need to know. Um, and so you you really specialize in dog bite law. Is that right? That's a, a large part of what my practice is. Um, I'm, I'm board certified in personal injury trial law uh, in general, but I, I have over the years kind of focused my practice more and more on handling dog bite cases. Um, we have other members of the firm that handle virtually, you know, all the car wrecks, slip and falls, premises liability, general negligence, work injuries, things like that. Um, but I've kind of 
mine has become very kind of focused and limited on dog bites. That's correct. And I know it varies from state to state, but is this true? Does every dog get one free bite? <laughs> well, that really depends on the state. There are, um, let me see if I can find the number for you. There are, let's see, certain number of states that are strict liability, 32 states plus Washington, D.C., um, have strict liability laws. So those dogs in, in those states do not get a free bite. Um, I can list those for you if you want to hear them or I can, <laughs> or if it's well, not that important. I, I, I think that's, that's good to know. So why don't you explain uh, what strict liability means? So strict liability is, is, is a law that basically says if you own a dog, you're responsible for its actions. Um, there are, and so it relieves the victim of the burden of proving negligence on the part of the dog owner. Um, and that dog bite law, the original one bite rule develops largely from premises liability under the common law. Uh, and the knowledge element becomes very difficult when you're dealing with dog bite cases. So as a result, strict liability does away with the, the burden of trying to prove the knowledge element uh, and puts more of a burden on the dog owner to make sure the dog doesn't do things it's not supposed to. Got it. So um, the majority of states follow that strict liability principle? Correct. Okay. And um, the minority of states that follow the other principle, and I, I think the one free bite rule it sort of was set up because, you know, if you don't know your dog has a, a dangerous propensity for violence, you know, you shouldn't be... Um, subject to, to judicial scrutiny for that, right? Is that kind of the concept behind that? Well, kind of. It's If you go back to premises liability law, remember, if you go onto somebody's property and you slip in, in some water and fall down and get hurt, you, they're not responsible for you unless you show that they knew that dangerous condition was there and they failed to act to clean it up. So the law is about notice and premises liability. It's about proving that the owner knew there was a danger there. Um, you know, because people, we are perfect. We, we can't anticipate every possible thing that could happen. So there has to be a, a, a way to restrict that. So when you cut, bring that over to dog bite law, the question becomes, is there a dangerous propensity in that dog that the owner should be aware of? And the one bite rule says, if that's never manifested itself, and given the owner reason to be aware that that dog is dangerous or that dog has vicious tendencies, then he's not responsible for it. But once it does, uh, then he becomes responsible for that. Got it. And is Texas a strict liability state? No, Texas is a one bite rule state. One bite rule state. Okay. Um, so are there caps on um, damages you can receive in Texas if you get bit by a dog? Um so there are caps on punitive damages in Texas, uh, and then there's caps on certain medical malpractice damages in Texas, but there is not general caps on general damages in Texas for if you're injured by a dog or something like that. Now, the, the punitive damages caps can often affect these kind of cases, uh, but the standard for punitive damages is, is extremely high in Texas. You have to prove... Uh, by clear and convincing evidence, uh, and you have to have a unanimous verdict of all 12 jurors in order to award uh, punitive damages. Got it. 
And in the one bite uh, law states, does it matter what type of breed of dog you have? Does that come into play? Very f- well, I in Texas, no. <laughs> in some states, it does. Some states, it does not. Um, because there are certain states that have rules saying you can't have this breed or you can't have that breed. There are other states that let their cities regulate that. And so the cities may have a code that says you can't have this breed or you can't have that breed. And depending on how the individual state interprets the law, that could be used as a way of showing uh, negligence or viciousness uh, under the standard because the reasoning behind them not allowing that particular breed is the state has determined that that dog is too vicious or too too unstable to own. Got it. And in states that do not follow strict liability, if you take your dog to a dog park and both dogs, you know, have, have never bitten any other dog or person in the past and, um, one of the dogs attacks the other dog. I mean, how do you go about just proving your case there? What are some <laughs> of the facts you need to gather? Or what would you um, suggest to people who have had that happen to them? So are we talking strict liability or are we talking one bite rule states? Let's do both. <laughs> okay. Well, so for a strict liability state, you're going to be responsible for the actions of your dog in general. Um, so if your dog starts the attack, uh, then the other person obviously has a right to bring a claim showing that your dog was a problem or not. That's just going to be a matter of bringing the witnesses forth and establishing what happened. Now, depending on what state you're in, it may be a, just a matter of you're responsible for the other dog's damages and they're responsible for yours. Um, but it can get very confusing. Now, you're dealing with a, in this situation that you've described, you're talking about only harm to animals, which brings up a whole nother issue. And that is that the states that look at, that have looked at this, including Texas, for the most part, consider animals to be chattels or property. So they view a dog the same way you would view a car. If you wrecked somebody's car, then you're entitled to fair market value of the car. If you harm somebody's dog, the law basically says that they're responsible for paying for the damage, for the value of that dog. Um, there's a big if out there question as to whether or not if your dog gets injured and you go and, it, and as a result has thousands and thousands of dollars of medical bills, there's a big if out there in, in some jurisdictions as to whether or not you're entitled to recover those medical bills or you're only required to recover the actual value of replacing the dog. Um, and it's so it's kind of a, a strange issue. It's a that, that you have to deal with sometimes and a lot of times people end up handling those in small claims court and dealing with on their own. And, uh, and they tend to be able to recover their damages, at least the medical expenses kind of better that way, I think. Now, the other thing to think about this is, so one bite rule, you're going to have to show, um, well, one bite rule focuses largely on the viciousness of the dog. So, if my dog goes out and attacks another dog and gets in a fight, that usually doesn't qualify you for one bite rule because the animal has not shown aggression towards a human in that instance. It's shown aggression towards an animal, which is not considered abnormally dangerous. Uh, the one bite rule is hinged upon the idea that you're responsible for your dog if your dog is abnormally dangerous. And what they mean by that is you're your dog has vicious tendencies abnormal to 
the class of animal it is, and that is a domestic pet in this case. A domestic pet is not expected to be vicious towards humans, but it is expected to be aggressive towards dogs, sometimes aggressive towards squirrels, bunnies, whatever. And so just because it goes after another animal doesn't mean it's going to get you to that level of one bite rule, even if it comes along and attacks a human a week later or something like that, that won't be evidence in that case. So you get a very kind of hairy mix right there. And then you've got another issue that you got to look at in both these states. And that is that when you're in a dog park, dog parks are almost like their own little jurisdictions. If you ever walk one, most dog parks are city operated. Um, first of all, so you're dealing with now the issue of sovereign immunity because you've got to prove whatever the restrictions of, of the Tort Claims Act in that state are to be able to bring a claim against the government anyways. In Texas, Texas Tort Claims Act, the only arguable sections you can argue are is the section that says uh, you can hold the city liable for a tangible use of government property. But my understanding of the case law and that have addressed this issue is, in, is that the use of it or opening a free dog park is it may be a tangible use of property, but it's not what produces the injury. What produces the injury is a dog and the dog is not a tangible use of property by the government because the government isn't using the dog. And so as a result, it's almost impossible to get to the city in those kind of cases anyways. The other thing that you see in dog parks all the time is you'll see almost every dog park I've ever been in. Um, and I've been to quite a few because we, uh, in addition to me having my own dog, we actually hand out a lot of, uh, we have these uh, seat belts that have a, that plug into your seat belt and then attach to the dog harness. And, they, and we have some that are promotional that we, we produce to hand out. And uh, so sometimes we just go out to the dog parks and hand them out so that people have them so their dogs don't jump all over the car while they're driving, that sort of thing. And every single one of the ones in the Houston area that I've been to has their own big disclaimer board on the side that says, your use of the park means that you are responsible for 100% for the actions of your dog, number one. And number two, the city is not responsible at all for the actions of your dog. <laughs> and so when you walk in the door, there is a contract basically created between you and the city that says you're not going to hold them liable in exchange for you being allowed to use this park and that you're going to accept 100% responsibility for the actions of your dog and any damage done by your dog uh, as a result of using this park. So it's kind of an interesting area that hasn't really been tested very well in, in the courts yet. But my feeling is that there's clearly a, you are agreeing to an implied contract the moment that you are an express contract, excuse me, the moment that you walk through that gate and you, you're accepting those terms. So um, dog parks are kind of a, a sovereign <laughs> land when it comes to the law on dogs. <laughs> yeah, very interesting. Let's talk a little bit about workers' compensation. So if you're a FedEx worker, you work for UPS, or you work for the United States Postal Service, um, your chances of getting bit by a dog are pretty high, right? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's very true. Um, um, go ahead. I was just going to say that, uh, in fact, the U.S. Post Office publishes a report every year um, Let's see, I believe last year, 2000, let's see, uh, 2019, they had 5,803 postal, postal employees attacked by dogs. Uh, and they actually, on their website, they rank it by city. 
Houston was number one and Los Angeles was number two. And I'm, I'm sad to report that Houston has been number one since 2017 on that. So it's so ugly that they named us the uh, dog bite capital of the, of the United States as a result of uh, their study. Why do you think that is? Just the two cities are uh, densely populated? I, I think, well, our, it's, uh, well, I can't speak so much for California because I'm not uh, as familiar with why they're, you know, the, it's happening over there as it is here. I can say in Texas, we are densely populated and Texas is a, is a, is a kind of a gun toting hunting state. We love our dogs down here. And, uh, <laughs> and it's like, it, it's almost like you, you, you're required to own a dog in, in Texas. It seems like, but uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, workers compensation um, is interesting because, well, first of all, it varies from state to state and actually California in Texas are, are very different. But in California, if you're bit by a dog and you work for FedEx or, or whatever company, um, you don't have to prove negligence. Uh, strict liability, what we were just talking about, kind of gets thrown out the window. Um, California has a no-fault system. Um, there's no you know, assumption of the risk defenses. So if you get bit by a dog, it doesn't matter if that dog has bitten 10 people or you're the first person they bit. Um, you still could be entitled to workers' compensation benefits. Um, now, Texas is a little different. I, I think Texas might be the only state in the country that kind of um, has distinguishes this greatly from workers' compensation laws where um, you can opt out, correct? An employer can opt out of workers' comp in Texas? Correct. It's, a, it's purely a choice for the employer to be in workers' compensation uh, versus an another alternative policy versus having nothing if they so choose, but there are penalties that come along with that choice. If you do not provide workers' compensation to employees. And I don't know if you know this, but what, what are the percentage of businesses that um, opt in versus opt out? Oh, I have no idea. I've never, uh, I've never actually looked at those numbers. Yeah. I'd be curious to know that. Um, I think it's really bad for injured workers, the system oh, they have set up in Texas. <laughs> Without a doubt. It's so if an employer chooses to provide it, then great, they have coverage. If they don't, what happens is they waive all their common law defenses uh, in both a civil action or well, in a civil action uh, outside of workers' compensation. So it basically says, we're going to treat you defense wise the same way you would have been in workers' compensation, even though you didn't provide it. Now it leaves them in the court of law where they can get sued without those defenses, which is a lot more dangerous for employers. Um, so what it does here is it creates a whole new type of, I guess we would say a gap in the law, um, where that has been filled by insurance companies where they come in and they create these sort of third party benefit type plans. And they come in and they sell them to these employers saying, if you sign up for this plan, it costs way less than workers comp and it provides the exact same protection. You can't be sued. They have to go to arbitration. They have to do this. And the employers sign up for these thinking they're getting a great deal until a claim comes along. And then what they find out is that they are forced to arbitrate the claim, but the claim, they, the injured employee can still bring a claim against the employer. And so they wind up having to deal with the headache of a litigation just in a different venue, basically. Um, and it doesn't really give them the protection they thought they were getting from workers' comp. Right. And we should back up a little bit and um, explain the history of workers' comp. 
Um, it was set up as a bargain between injured workers and employers. So injured workers are supposed to get um, quick benefits, uh, medical treatment, and get back to work as soon as possible. And the benefit for employers is you don't get these huge jury trial verdicts where you get millions of dollars. Um, I did an episode on this and, and the workers' comp attorney I interviewed in Los Angeles, he had a great point. He says, nobody gets rich off workers' comp. <laughs> so um, in Texas, you would think if you're an injured worker under that system, okay, great. I get to go to civil court and you know I get a, a jury trial and I get to have these uh, you know, a big award for all the pain and suffering I've been through. The problem with the civil court system is it takes years. And by the time you get in front of a judge, you're homeless, your wife left you, and it's just, <laughs> it's horrible. And another thing, you know, these employers can do is, you know, you get hurt and what happens if they file for bankruptcy? What right. What's your remedy there? And so, um, Again, that's why the workers' compensation system was set up. You know, everyone in California, it's illegal um, if you do not have workers' compensation insurance. And, and I think that's the, the correct method to provide benefits for injured workers. Right. And then there's also the added benefit of you don't have to prove negligence, which is huge because it, it expands coverage of the employees to situations that may have been unpredictable. So for example, a dog bite, somebody's walking along and, and, uh, and gets bitten and, uh, you know, it, you don't have to go in and try and prove that the owner was somehow negligent in sending the employee to go deliver mail, you know, it, it, which you couldn't, it would, it basically relieves that burden as you were saying earlier and says, okay, we're going to cover this regardless of who was negligent, and who wasn't because you were on the clock. Um, exactly. And that, and that makes sense. It makes sense, Paul, that, you know, I think some people are listening to this say, well, hey, you should have to prove negligence. Think about it this way. Okay. If you're a police officer or a firefighter or a nurse, you know, let's take the police officer, for example, if you go out and, and unfortunately you get assaulted, um, why would we make them prove negligence? Right. Mm -hmm. It just doesn't make sense. Yeah. I mean, it's, if you think about it, I, I've always struggled with the whole idea of negligence, even though Texas is a complete, I mean, everything's negligence, even the auto, you know, you have these no fault policies out there in auto, you have these states that are complete, you know, you have to prove negligence like Texas. To me, some of these things never made sense. For example, one of the biggest things that drives me nuts is if you buy underinsured motorist insurance coverage and you get run off the road by somebody that never actually hits you, but just swerves in front of you and forces you off the road, you don't have coverage under your own policy because there's a no contact rule in your policy that says, if there's no contact between the two vehicles, then we don't cover you for that accident. Who buys insurance going, I only want insurance if I have contact with another vehicle. You buy insurance to protect you in case your car wrecks and you're hurt. You know, the, the consumer has no idea that that happens until it happens to them. And it just to me, it's kind of silly. It's like we we should be trying to cover people in as many ways and shapes and forms as we can, because the idea is to keep people from being injured and unable to support their families. Right. Absolutely. So um, the next subject I want to talk to you about really uh, frustrates me. And that's these caps on damages. <laughs> um, in in Texas, are there caps on uh, like medical malpractice 
damages and things like that? Are they similar to other states? Well, the, I don't know if I can tell you how similar they are to other states. <laughs> I can tell you, yes, there are caps on damages. They basically put these sort of a 250 cap per person type uh, or per entity, uh, but then they don't apply to certain non-economic damages. And the funny thing is, I mean, not funny, I guess the funny is a bad word. The, the word to say is that the sad part about it is, is the, they wind up being discriminatory uh, in, in the way they're they, they affect people. So for example, if you're somebody who is elderly and you're injured so that you're retired, which means you're injured, you're taken care of, and your real damage is basically your pain and suffering and, and so forth. You're gonna have a hard time finding a lawyer who wants to take that case. And the reason you have a hard time finding a lawyer who wants to take that case is because the defendants are gonna be capped off most likely at a $250,000 cap as to what they can be held liable for. And the only way to bust that cap is if you have a lot of non-economic damages, such as lost wages or you know, your inability to earn income, those sorts of things. And if your medical bills are not high or your non-economic damages are not high out there because you're retired, the fact that you're disabled to the point that you physically can't walk or, or, or whatnot doesn't have the same kind of impact because it's the, that damage of physical impairment is going to be capped because it's not non-economic. Um, and so the other thing people don't realize is when you put that kind of cap on damages, and it costs, and then they have these kind of pitfalls at the front of uh, MetaMail where you have to have a expert evaluate your case within, I think it's the first 180 days or so. And, and you have to have them evaluate the case basically before the case starts, write a report saying why there was negligence, what the standard of negligence is and everything else. And these experts are not cheap. You can spend 10 grand easy on a report. Uh, if he wants to review all the records and everything, double that. And then he's going to want the same to testify. And then you're going to have to take all the other defendants depositions, everyone else. You can spend you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars litigating a med mal case. If you, what lawyer is going to want to take on a contingency fee basis and put up $100,000 at risks to try and recoup a maximum recovery of $250,000? It, it's just not good investment in your money. And so a lot of cases that are legitimate medical malpractice cases simply get turned down because they are no longer economically feasible. Well, you made an excellent point that um, these caps are arbitrary and they are discriminatory and they disproportionately impact women. Think about it. Um, Stay-at-home moms have been unfortunately um, traditionally undervalued with these types of, um, you call them non-economic damages, right? Right. Um, so that is such an important point. The other point is, is this constitutional? I don't believe it is. You have a right to a jury trial. You have a right to sit on a jury as well. And, and that's very important because you have a disabled person in your community and it's your right to assess the damages and juries get it right. Most of the time, juries get it right. And, and you have six to 12 jurors, depending on where you are in the country, and we're taking power away from the juries. And, and I really don't like that. <laughs> oh, you and me both. It's, um, it's so in Texas, I remember, of course, I was practicing at the time all that change came about. And um, 
so in order, you're right, it was unconstitutional. In order for them to put caps on damages, they had to amend the Texas Constitution. Now, for people outside of the state of Texas, that doesn't probably, me saying that, have quite the impact as it does Texans. We're really big in Texas on this idea of we're our sovereign you know, state here. You don't, we don't want federal government messing with it. We don't want changes made. We don't want our constitution toyed with. Our founders did the right thing. It's a, there's a lot of historic sort of pride in the state of Texas over that stuff. So when they got ready to change that law, they didn't get up and advertise, we want you to amend the constitution. They got up and said, we want you to vote for proposition you know, four or whatever it is for tort reform. We're going to pass laws that are going to stop frivolous lawsuits. And they advertise it as stop frivolous lawsuits, stop frivolous lawsuits, just vote for Prop 4. And if you went and read the extremely long paragraph under Prop 4 that nobody bothered to do before checking the box and walking out of the voting booth, it went into long detail about how in order to make this change, there was going to have to be a two-thirds majority vote of the population because we were amending the comp constitution to limit our own right to trial by jury. Now you never heard that in any of the radio channels or TV channels. Hey, by the way, if you vote for this, you're, you're voting away your right to trial by jury. That would have been, had people up at arms, but instead they slickly came in and said, we're putting caps on frivolous lawsuits. We're putting, we're going, this is going to enable us to put caps on frivolous lawsuits, vote proper for, for, for doing away with frivolous lawsuits. Well, everyone's going to vote to do away with frivolous, frivolous lawsuits. That sounds great to, to everybody. You know, I mean, it hurts you and me for there to be frivolous lawsuits, but what they were really doing was doing away with as many lawsuits as possible, frivolous or not, you know? <laughs> well, and that's so such a good point. The way they phrase it caps on frivolous lawsuits when in reality they're hurting people who are seriously injured this doesn't impact the people with uh you know finger injuries this right. impacts um people who are who have been in very serious um accidents and and that's what's really frustrating another thing people don't understand is if we got rid of the caps the judge still has discretion um, right. if, if the judge believes that um, the jury just went too crazy and awarded, you know, a billion dollars to somebody who didn't deserve it. The judge will give the plaintiff two options. The judge will say, I'm going to reduce it to X amount, or you can get a new trial. And the beautiful thing about that is it still preserves your right to a jury trial. And so I think we have, I, I think the framework is set up to where um, we can protect against these um quote unquote frivolous awards without these arbitrary bans. Correct. Correct. And it's, it's sad because it's, it, you know, there, there's action groups out there that are pushing for one thing or another. And it really has become commonplace in our society to basically redefine terms so that you can say, we meet this term. We're doing away with frivolous lawsuits. When you go look at the law, it's the way it's written, it's going to do away with 90% legitimate lawsuits and 10% frivolous lawsuits. Well, they can still make a true statement. This law is going to help, going to eliminate frivolous lawsuits. <laughs> they don't tell you they're hurting the good people too, you know? Yeah. Well, interesting discussion, Paul. I thank you for your, your time and your expertise. And uh, thank you again for all your volunteer work. I mean, you really, uh, what bothers me is the negative stereotypes personal injury attorneys have, and you, you certainly are shattering those stereotypes. So thank you for your, uh, 
your time and your expertise. Absolutely. Thank you for having me as a guest, Ian. The information provided in this podcast does not and is not intended to constitute legal advice. Instead, all information, content, and materials available on this podcast are for general informational purposes only. Information in this podcast may not constitute the most up-to-date legal or other information. Listeners of this podcast should contact their attorney to obtain advice with respect to any particular legal matter. No reader or listener to this podcast should act or refrain from acting on the basis of information on this podcast without first seeking legal advice from counsel in the relevant jurisdiction. Only your individual attorney can provide assurances that the information contained herein and your interpretation of it is applicable or appropriate to your particular situation. Use of and access to this podcast or any of the resources contained within the podcast do not create an attorney-client relationship. The views expressed at or through this podcast are those of the individual author writing in their individual capacities only, not those of their respective employers. All liability with respect to actions taken or not taken based on the contents of this podcast are hereby expressly disclaimed. The content on this posting is provided as is. No representations are made that the content is error-free.